Hi, I'm Jayant Sriram and welcome to In Focus, the Hindu's analysis podcast. Thanks for joining us. The week's news has been dominated by the border dispute between India and China in Ladakh. And this is a story of course with many many angles to it. And so this episode is really important because it's an assessment of where we are right now. As we are reporting in the Hindu today, the consensus on disengagement of troops reached between the core commanders on June 22nd is yet to be implemented and we don't really have a proper timeline for when that's going to happen and at present as a very highly placed defense source tells us it's very much a wait and watch game by both sides. Satellite images and reports meanwhile indicate a massive build up and construction by the Chinese People's Liberation Army along the LAC in eastern Ladakh in Galwan Valley as well as in the Depsang plains. So these are snippets of news that you would have read about in the papers possibly watched on TV and we'll try and tie them together and make sense of the situation both in terms of what's happening along the LAC but also going beyond to look at the diplomatic situation between the two countries and also to analyze the narrative now coming out of China about their claims on the Galwan Valley all of this i think helps us assess just how serious the story is right now all of this i think helps us assess just how serious the story is right now and what is the kind of time frame we are looking at over which it may play out i'm joined today by two of the hindus top experts on this subject suhasini haider national and diplomatic affairs editor and anand krishnan the hindus former beijing correspondent anand and suhasini uh, welcome to the podcast today thank you for joining us So um so you know yesterday in the paper and on the website we had two uh, rather different stories um one was an exclusive which said that during core commander level um, uh, talks that um the chinese had called what had happened in galwan um an unfortunate incident and um conversely uh, you know at the same time um you had reported anand that the pla had made some rather strong claims about galwan being uh, chinese territory so Uh, and uh, later on in the day we got we got this news about satellite images showing that uh, structures had come up again in that region um so you know just taking all of this together uh, suhasini where do you think the story is now um, where is it now heading well look jent we are definitely in an extremely uh, difficult space uh, no one could uh, imagine uh, perhaps uh, a month ago how serious things would get but at the present moment nobody really could uh, uh, be would be able to say uh, very very confidently where this is going to lead and i say this because as you pointed out yourself there seem to be several different strands of conversation coming uh, through between india and china at this time and and by that i just mean uh, about the lac situation uh, where you have uh, a situation where at the lac military commanders are meeting uh as you pointed out some of the conversations have been very positive have worked towards disengagement i have certainly spoken of the idea of how to uh, work out a disengagement map uh at the same time there is every indication that the chinese troops that have clearly moved well beyond the lines we've seen them move in the past are not willing to uh push back on on, on the ground so uh that's uh, that's uh, that's part of the kind of confusion that's coming through equally between new delhi and beijing uh we're seeing a, a desire by new delhi in many ways to move forward with diplomacy uh the external affairs minister taking part in 
uh, Russia, India, China trilateral was quite unusual given the situation simply because uh, he was willing to move on and talk about other issues besides uh, the LAC with his Chinese counterpart, although this was in a trilateral uh, format meant uh, to be hosted by the Russians. Uh, we've also seen uh, talks happen between uh, joint at the joint secretary level, what's called the, uh, the working mechanism between the two countries for coordination, the WMCC, that also met on Wednesday uh, and, and decided at the end to uh, take matters forward quote-unquote, through uh, dialogue. Uh, so, we, we're hearing all the right noises in a sense, but we're still not seeing them translated on the ground. Uh, and that's actually what is causing concern, that even if you talk about the standoff point at, at, at the Galwan Valley, the what is called PP14 or Patrol Point 14, uh, where the clashes occurred, where at least 20 Indian soldiers died, and we're still waiting to hear about the exact number of Chinese casualties. Uh, the, the, we understand that even at that point, the Chinese presence is back up uh, at different other conflict points that have already been identified by both sides, you know, three points in the Galwan Valley, as well as Pangong, so hot springs as, as well. Um, at each of these points, uh, it does not seem as if uh, Chinese troops are pulling back. In fact, they seem to have amassed in greater numbers and they seem to be consolidating positions with things like structures, with things like tents, with things like equipments and very, very large uh, vehicles. Jen? So, Anant, I'd just like to ask you again about, um, you know, the, the, the statements coming out, the kind of narrative being structured um, in China about their claims on the Galvan Valley. And I know that you have a better idea of this than most people. Um, how has that been evolving? I know you've written a lot about it, but help us put the pieces together here. Well, Jaren, the statements that came from China uh, on June 24th, and you had two simultaneous statements, one from the foreign ministry and one from the PLA or defense ministry, uh, didn't really paint a very uh, positive picture in terms of the potential for a very uh, for for a very clear disengagement and de-escalation in the near term, because what it did uh, highlight were differences in how both sides seem to have portrayed whatever consensus was reached, uh, both in the June sixth co-commander level talks that preceded the clash, and also the more recent June twenty second co-commander level talks. Because what the Chinese said uh, on the 24th of June is that they reiterated their claim of the entire Galwan Valley uh, being uh, belonging to China. And they did portray the line of actual control, if you re read between the lines of the Chinese statements, as something that was different from what India says the LAC is in the valley. The Chinese were saying that the LAC, uh, the entire valley, lies on China's side of the LAC. But as uh, Swasini just mentioned, Patrol Point 14, which both sides were going up to, lies in the valley east of where the Galwan River uh, has its estuary, as the Chinese call it, with the Shiok River. So the Indian government has rejected the Chinese characterization of events, and they've also said that the China's statements of what India agreed to at the talks was a misrepresentation. So looking at the two different public statements that have come out, they are painting a very uh, different pictures of what was agreed to at the June 22nd talks. So, and as Swasini pointed out, if even if both sides were indeed seeing eye to eye on the consensus reached at the co-commander level talks, translating that in the ground is going to be very, very difficult in so many different spots on the LAC, especially in light of the fact that as Swasini just said, 
uh, satellite images and other reports point to the opposite of, of more tents coming up, more forces being deployed, albeit in depth. So, but if, even if we're looking at, at an even more basic level, if the consensus reached is something that both sides are interpreting differently, and we saw that led to devastating consequences on June 15th during the de-escalation process, I think we have to be quite cautious in expecting a, a solution to this current multiple standoffs in the in the near term. Right. Yeah, I just want to get an idea from both of you of, um, you know, even if, you know, while the talks are ongoing, even if there is some consensus kind of reach, how how long do you see this kind of playing out? What's the kind of time period that we might be talking about here? So, Asni? Um, well, it's, it's really anybody's guess. What is clear is that when we have had, uh, uh, and you know, there have been some false starts in the last few weeks where we've heard uh, the commanders met and, and actually decided to disengage. The next step would be de-induction of troops. Um, it's been quite clear that that has not followed through. Um, so I would say I would say that uh, uh, everyone is prepared that this could go very long. You only have to uh, look back in history to see uh, that when we've had uh, situations like this, and this is an unprecedented situation because it's across so many conflict points and across so many sectors. Uh, but when we've had these situations, they have uh, they have gone on for a very long time. If you uh, look before 1993 when the current set of protocols were put into place and I think we can all agree we're in uncharted territory. Uh, there was uh, the Sundarangchu standoff between the two countries that lasted uh, nearly seven years. So uh, uh, obviously we're, uh, 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 there, there is hopes from the officials that it was not going to take that long. Uh, but the fact remains that until China does step back, or the Chinese troops do step back from uh, positions they have taken in the last few weeks, what is called status quo ante uh, from, from before May is re-established, it will be very difficult for the Indian side to accept an outcome. Yeah, Anant, um, is there anything that uh, you'd like to add to that? China, looking at what China has sort of invested in this over the past month, the fact that they're, they're building, at least we know in Pangong, so they're building what seem to be somewhat permanent structures in addition to tents and other semi-permanent structures. I would find it very difficult uh, to understand if they just suddenly withdrew completely and reverted to the pre-May status quo, because that would beg the question, why did they do all of this in multiple sectors? Why did it lead to a clash, the worst violence since 1967? Disengagement is possible, but the question is, what terms? And I would find it very hard to imagine the Chinese agreeing to disengage to exactly where we were, the status quo anti Swasni said, which India has publicly said is its bottom line. So something has to give here. I think if there is going to be a disengagement, I'd say the prospects of it being a complete disengagement to pre-May 1st or whatever date you would like to, to set before all of this happened, I would say that's going to be very unlikely. So, if we can just move beyond what's happening on the LAC right now. So, Asni, I'll come to you first. Just going beyond, you know, just the rhetoric that's happening on boycott China. What are there more serious developments on the diplomatic front and uh, that, that could play out in the coming days? And what's going to be the effect now also in the short term on just on people to people relations between India and China? Then, given the seriousness of the situation between India and China right now, uh, I think the first step is going to be to acknowledge where we are in terms of bilateral relations and the kind of impact what we've seen in the last month is going to have on long-term relations. Obviously, many in India feel 
uh, extremely uh, betrayed in a sense and feel that uh, while uh, India and China had good bilateral ties, uh, the economy, uh, trade relations were booming, uh, Prime Minister Modi and uh, Chinese President Xi met as many as 18 times. It just seems to have come out of the blue for many people uh, in terms of watching what has developed at the LAC over the last month. On the other hand, it would seem that there has been a deep miscalculation of just where those ties were. So the first impact, I would say, is going to be on a, a careful assessment of India-China relations at present. Where are they between uh, in, in ties with each other? Also, uh, where are they in, in terms of that boundary resolution? Have they made any progress at all over the last few years? And what kind of impact are the new positions that China has taken and uh, consequently India is taking, uh, 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 or certainly India is uh, bolstering, going to have on that future relationship. Uh, the second one is going to be the impact on people-to-people -people ties. Uh, and I think, um, I say this without exaggeration, that they have really hit a new low uh, in the last few, uh, compared to the last few decades, because we're looking at a situation where uh, we, we hear of protests on the streets here, um, the, the talk about boycotting Chinese products, something that was spoken about a little bit at the beginning of the coronavirus pandemic, now we're hearing about it much more. Uh, as an example, the Delhi Hoteliers and Restauranters Association putting out a notice to say they will not be accommodating Chinese nationals. Uh, certainly a huge setback for ties between the two countries and particularly for people-to-people -people ties. It's one thing to say that at present we don't actually have tourists uh, going back and forth between the two countries. Um, but over the course of time, and certainly there are in, uh, a, a, any number of Indians as well in China who would be affected if this were to become a reciprocal thing. And the third part of the impact I think is going to be watched very closely is India's relations with the rest of the world as a result of this. On the one hand, is India going to be able to uh, build, a, build a sort of uh, a coalition of countries who uh, will, uh, in a sense, back it up? when it comes to the confrontation with China, uh, what is going to happen with neighboring countries like uh, Nepal and uh, Pakistan and Bangladesh that have very strong ties with China right now. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, 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 and certainly it will be worth watching how they react to any kind of conflagration. And then, of course, everybody is watching to see what the U.S. role in all of this is going to be. So far, what we've seen is the United States essentially saying, uh, that it recognizes uh, China's aggression, uh, but uh, but not going beyond offering help in terms of mediation between the two countries. Uh, and certainly we understand also some kind of information sharing, satellite information and that sort of thing. Um, so I think on all these three fronts, Ajanta, it'll be worth watching uh, to see exactly where uh, India-China relations are going to go. And Anand, I wanted to ask you about the uh, the economic relationship between the two countries. I think I think most people realize that you know just this kind of blind boycott of uh, Chinese goods um, and just sort of boycotting China and all economic aspects might be easier said than done. In fact, that's going to be extremely difficult to achieve. Um, without necessarily understanding, I think how interconnected these things are. So, is there a short term and long term view to this? In while we're going through the coronavirus pandemic now. What is the nature of our um, dependence on China for things like, um, well, supplies and other things? No, Jayant, I think that's a very valid question, but I don't think it's an answer where it's either 
we can 100% boycott every economic interaction with China or on the other end of the spectrum, there's absolutely nothing we can do. I think there certainly are targeted economic measures that we can take and we should be considering uh, in light of the recent events. And before I come to what those measures could be, I think that we have to have uh, be realistic about this. Uh, at the end of the day, you're talking about the world's second largest economy and not just that, uh, you're talking about a country that's at the heart of so many global supply chains and the nature of a globalized world is that even if you're going to try to prevent uh, direct imports from China, they're probably going to end up coming through Hong Kong. An interesting stat I read uh, today, uh, Jayant, is that our imports from China are at a five-year low, though, though we import more from China than from any other country. But at the same time, at this five-year period, our imports from Hong Kong have increased threefold. So that just goes to show that uh, things are interconnected. And I think that the other problem for us is there are many goods that we source from China that aren't really available everywhere in the world. There may be two or three or four countries that manufacture these goods. Some of our biggest imports, I mean, there's a popular misconception that we're importing cheap goods and uh, you know, buckets and TVs and things like that, of course. But right. these but these good, goods that I'd say that you can easily substitute maybe would account for less than maybe 5% of imports from China. We, we also import heavy machinery, electrical machinery, semiconductors, pharmaceutical ingredients, fertilizers. Uh, I mean, so many things that we need that are going to be very difficult to source from elsewhere. Uh, and if we do source from elsewhere, they will impose costs on the Indian consumer. So I think we have to look at this uh, in a in a realistic way. But uh, having said that, Giant, I think there are uh, some areas where the Indian government was considering being wary about Chinese investment. If I can highlight one, that is Chinese uh, telecommunications companies participating in both current 4G networks and in 5G trials as well, where you, where you do have Chinese companies that are at present participating in 5G trials. I think that one decision the Indian government may possibly take going forward is to prevent Chinese companies from, for, for example, in the rollout of India's 5G network. That would be a big signal to send to China that it can't be business as usual if you're going to be doing these things on the boundary. So right, uh, again, a question that maybe both of you can take in turns. Um, we have our understanding of the story has kind of evolved uh, over the past week, over the past few weeks, in fact. But um, one important area on which we're still kind of seeking clarity is on um, is on the reasons why this happened and what could be China's motivations behind this. Um, so, so Asni, will you will you take that first? Do we has our understanding advanced over the past week? You know, Jen, I think what's become very obvious over the last one and a half months is not enough people feel confident about the way China has been studied, uh, particularly in India. And the idea that people don't really understand where China is coming from. There are the obvious points people have made in terms of uh, the rise of China, aggression when it comes to uh, other areas like the South China Sea and other parts of uh, Asia as well. Um, but we are also looking closer now at some of the other points. Strategic thinkers have, have said clearly this is not a mobilization. If you look at the fact that there is a Chinese uh, troop mobilization across all sectors uh, between India and China along the LAC, uh, this is not a mobilization that happened in a matter of weeks. In other words, the coronavirus pandemic was probably not the immediate uh, reason for uh, the kind of build-up we've seen as well as the aggression at specific points, whether it's Pangong, so 
uh, the lake as well as uh, Galwan Valley and, uh, and other points in Sikkim as well. Um, there are those who feel um, increasingly, and you may have seen an opinion piece in the Hindu as well, that talked about the link to Article 370 uh, and the reorganization of Jammu and Kashmir, which triggered something in China. Now, uh, this may be just one part of a larger puzzle, uh, but the fact that China protested right then when, uh, when the August 5th decision was taken and issued a statement particularly about the reorganization of Ladakh is uh, certainly significant. Uh, you know, there are others who are looking at it at a completely historic, through a his completely historic prism and saying actually what China is pushing for is the original boundaries that Tibet held with a lot of these areas. So, for example, the Tibet uh, Ladakh uh, Treaty that goes back several centuries to so 1684 had certain different lines uh, as well as the Tibet Sikkim Treaty and, and others. So, there are all these new theories as well as some of the old ones that are coming out. But I think, uh, you know, uh, someone like Anand who has studied China closely, who, uh, who uh, you know, has, has a personal experience of the place would probably have a better idea of where uh, this is coming from, especially given that it's now been six weeks at least of an established standoff between the two countries. Yeah, Anand, um, you can take the last word on this. Well, Jayad, I think it's at uh, the best of times really difficult to assess uh, what Chinese motivations uh, may or may not uh, be. Uh, and I think that, I mean, this is, that's just given how opaque the place is. Uh, I would just say that I think uh, more important than their motivations or intentions would be the outcome of their actions over the past month. And I think just looking at, at their actions uh, at the ground level over the past month, I think what's clear is the fact that it has happened at several sectors. It seems to be an assertion by China that it wants to get to its line of actual control in all of these places. Uh, and not only that, I think for the first time, try and deny India reaching India's line of actual control in these places. So just to briefly give our, our listeners a sense of... Uh, perspective on this. So the, the LAC is broadly agreed in most places except maybe more than a dozen places in all three sectors. And in the past, uh, how both sides resolved these overlapping claims was that they would allow the other side to patrol up to their claims, but they had modalities in place to regulate interactions in these overlapping gray zones, if we can call them that. But what seems to be happening over the past six weeks is a concerted effort by China to try and dominate at least some of these gray zones, which I think is a very uh, concerning event only, only because this has never happened before uh, since the 1962 war. And also it kind of calls into question uh, one of the founding understandings of all of the agreements that India and China have signed on the boundary since 1993. So I think even if we, uh, even as we uh, continue to examine China's motivations, which are important, I think at this stage, perhaps uh, it's more uh, relevant to look at the outcomes and how we're going to mitigate them. So we leave that conversation there at this point. I think there are a couple of points that we can definitely build on in the coming weeks. But Anand Sohasni, thank you so much for joining me for that update today. Thank you, Jayant.